going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. And uh, I tell you, from the whole book is great, but from chapter 40 on, it's hard to beat chapter 40. Actually, it's one of the most uh, wonderful chapters in the Bible. But uh, I mean, it really gets good from, from here on out in, in Isaiah and excited about going through it. Let's pray. Father, I just pray, just even as Isaiah uh, spoke so powerfully, uh, your word, I just pray that your word, Lord, would uh, just speak in deep into our hearts uh, today, uh, Lord, tonight, and that we would just close here uh, with a word from you, Lord, about how wonderful it is to be able to begin and end the day in your word. We need it, Lord. We need it every day. And it's great to come together as a family, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 1 says, Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Now, Isaiah 40 was speaking to a people who, Israel, who had been beaten down because of uh, the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and they had uh, just been disciplined, chastened severely. Chapter 40 begins, comfort, yes, speak comfort to Jerusalem for her Warfare has ended, her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. And, and the rest of the chapter is just such a wonderful picture of how the Lord draws in a man or woman or people who have repented. That's a really important thing at the end um, because God's not going to support us in our rebellion but when we repent, he is there to draw us back. Now, chapter 41 completely, it's one of those places where the chapter break belongs, right where it is, completely switches subjects. And it really um, just begins to describe sort of the, the nations, for lack of a better word, the pagan nations, the ungodly nations, really of the whole world, uh, some of whom would have been responsible for uh, coming in and being the tool of God's discipline of Israel, a really strange thing in the Bible, God will actually use someone to discipline Israel, an ungodly nation, and then he'll judge them for doing it. Uh, this is what happens. This is, this is, it's a great picture for us who have been grafted into uh, the, the the vine grafted into the stump, the Israel being the stump, we've been grafted in, into that tree. And it's just a picture of how much God loves us and he protects us. It says, keep silent before me, O Koshland. So O Koshland is another translation. You, you may have different uh, translations there, but it's it's just speaking to the nations. And it's basically telling them, you need to shut thy your mouth thy because I'm going to judge you and you're going to come into my courtroom. It says, let the people renew their strength. That's actually sarcastic there. Let them come near, let them speak again. 
whether you call it sarcasm or irony or mockery, let us come near together for judgment. You know, the Bible does say that there will be a judgment seat for the unbeliever. And it is a scary thought thinking about what an unbeliever is going to have, have whether they'll have anything to say at the judgment seat. Um, they're not going to be able to. And that's sort of where uh, he's going here. He says, who raised up one from the east? This is probably referring to Cyrus, who was the one to eventually defeat the Babylons, who Babylonians who had crushed Israel and left them in this chastened state. Who has raised up the one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him, made him rule over kings? Who gave them as dust to the sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had uh, not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. And so he's basically saying to the Babylonians, you're going to be crushed. You're going to be crushed by one who I raise up. And, you know, it is me. So the Babylonians had gotten to a place of uh, extreme pride. And, and, you know, one thing that is all around us today and all the, in the universities and the neighborhoods and whatever the nation. Is there any point, any direction whatsoever to human history? Um, you know, the evolutionists would say in biology, biology that the ones who were not so-called deistic evolutions, the ones who believe atheistic evolutions, who believe in no God, that everything sort of random chance in the area of biology and life and but then, they, of course, they would also say the same is the point with human history. There's, no, there's just a random, meaningless combination of undirected events. That sounds crazy to me. I, I, I mean, how, 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 how would we even still exist if that was the case? But, you know, the, the people suffer with this. And, and we talked this morning about that prophecy about Jesus who is going to bring light into the land of darkness. Why is it so dark? Well, when you believe that, that life is nothing but a random, meaningless combination of uh, undirected events, just a cycle fated to repeat itself endlessly or whatever, that's darkness. <laughs> and, and God brings light. And God in he- it's God in heaven who directs human events. And it's kind of cool, you know, when you're out witnessing. Sometimes, forget about sort of the evolutionary biology. A lot of people are just convinced simply based upon history in the world that, come on, someone, history is going somewhere. It, 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 it's being directed by something or somebody. Uh, and so uh, here, here the Lord says, who is it who's performed all these things, who's in charge of history? At the end of verse 4, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. Now, uh, you may know where I'm going to go here, but I, I just want to take you quick to Revelation chapter 1. This is an ver- important verse in, in there in uh, 
in chapter 41. I am the first and I am the last. I don't believe that's the only place that that is quoted in Isaiah. Where else is it? I thought there was one or two other places. But Revelation chapter 1, many of you, this is the Revelation singular. I still make that mistake calling it Revelations. But you guys who have been the Friday night Bible study, hopefully you're not still making that mistake. Revelation. And uh, it's, it's you know, Jesus speaking here. This is, you know, John in the spirit on the Lord's day. All of a sudden, uh, uh, he, he receives a revelation from Jesus Christ. And, and how does it begin? Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then verse 11, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And he, then he goes on and gives this incredible revelation to John. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 41, verse 4. Now, one of my, my favorite story about this particular verse is Walter Martin, who was the original Bible answer man. And I used to listen to him when I was a brand new Christian. He, he died about 15 or 20 years ago. And, but this is a radio program, the Bible Answer Man. But he just tells this story. I mean, he was a pretty audacious character. He just went into the Jehovah's Witnesses International offices in Brooklyn. And there was some poor guy on the front desk. And he said, and is told, Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus is God. And um, Walter Martin said, I just went up to the front desk and I started pounding on the desk. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And, and because he had gotten into a discussion with the with this gentleman at the front desk about who his God is, and the guy would would say something and try to come back with something, and he'd say, "I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end." And and the guy would try to argue, and apparently, literally, like twenty times, he did this, and then he stomped out of there and went off. 20 years later, after everyone knew who he was, he's sitting, I think, in some other part of the country, and uh, this is Walter Martin's testimony, and he's speaking to a bunch of people. Anybody heard this story? And all of a sudden, some guy in the back raises his hand, and he goes, hey, you know, I don't know if you remember this happening, but I used to be a Jehovah's Witness. I used to work in the office in Brooklyn, and you came in one day and you kept on, uh, you know, quoting this verse as proof that Jesus is God. And it just, I couldn't forget it. I couldn't get out of my mind. I couldn't get to sleep uh, because clearly in Isaiah chapter 41, it's referring to Jehovah, the Lord. And the guy was uh, converted to Jesus. <laughs> and, 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 so, uh, and so Walter Martin telling the story doesn't find out till 20 years later. So uh, I don't know, sometimes, you know, pounding your fist on a desk, uh, hey, uh, the Holy Spirit uses it. But uh, clear reference and revelation to Jesus' deity. 
no Jehovah, Jehovah Witness is going to deny that in verse 4 that Jesus is God. He had to be, as we talked about um, uh, last week in the chapter of Luke, for his sacrifice on the cross to last for all eternity, eternity past and eternity future. Otherwise, if he was just a human being and he wasn't God, his sacrifice would have been for that one day alone kind of like a sheep or a lamb or a goat or a ram in the Old Testament. Uh, and so verse 5, the coastlands saw it. Saw what? Just the judgment against them, the, these nations uh, that had uh, destroyed Israel. Babylonians would have mercenaries. Everyone know what a mercenary was? Maybe Maybe not. Mercenary is just hiring out foreign soldiers to fight for you. So many nations had participated, you know, at the end of the line of the kings of Israel when they were defeated and sent off. Many nations would have participated in that. This is a, uh, but, but when they were subsequently defeated and judged by the man that God raised up, Cyrus, it says they saw it and they feared. They were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, is it ready for uh, soldiering? Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. So all he's saying, again, sarcasm, mockery here, whatever word that you want to describe, they're just... He's making light, sort of making fun of the very silly idea that a goldsmith, you know, pounding a a weapon or something is going to be able to defeat God. Verse 8, but you, you Israel, are my servant. You, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen. The word Israel means governed by God or struggled with God. I prefer governed by God. Jacob means what? He's a deceiver. He's a, uh, a liar. He's a cheater. That's what Jacob did before he left his home with Isaac. He, he basically stole from, from Esau. He deceived. And this is just a wonderful thing. This is for you and me. At the same time, we're Israel. We're governed by God. We're in the kingdom of God. We're sanctified. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he addresses them at the very beginning of the letter as holy, sanctified, made holy. Wow, the Corinthians, everything that they did, you know, getting drunk at communion, open sexual immorality. Yeah, you are holy. You have been made holy. That's similar concept here. You're Israel. But at the same time, he also reminds them, but you're Jacob. You were a liar. You were a stealer. I saved you from that. And so that just uh, 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 you will see this happening throughout Isaiah, reminding them, positionally who they are before God, just as we, we're in Christ. But guess what? He has saved us from being Jacob, liars, stealers, sexual immorality, whatever, filled with pride. 
You, Israel, are my servant. It is the descendants of Abraham, my friend. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. Okay, remember when you're reading, just think about just how God's in control. And just like as Jesus said, you know, you didn't choose me. I chose you and I drew you out. And as a shepherd in John chapter 10, I go, I take you out into pasture uh, so that you will find pasture. Here, same thing. God takes Israel. He draws them out. I have chosen you, end of verse 9, and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Oh, I love that verse. It's just verse 10 is a promise. Now, the one of the you know, one of the principles of interpreting the Old Testament, there are some things that are said to Israel that just don't apply to us. They there was it was something sort of unique about Israel, like some of the kosher requirements, other things, even some of the promises that were given to them were uniquely to Israel. Other there's other promises such as this one where we can take full with full confidence we can lay hold of them. We have been uh, grafted into the tree, the Apostle Paul says, the tree being Israel, the stump being Israel, and, and you know, we now, uh, you know, grow as, as the tree, the whatever, of God, God's watering us, and, and, you know, fear not, for I am with you. you know, how often do we need that reminder? Be not dismayed, for I am your God. You know, the interesting thing about fear not, for I am with you. We always say, oh, that's a cool promise, and we lay hold of that promise. But it's also a command. And, and you know, every once in a while, you, you know, well, we're, we're just, we're only human. We, we fear, and, and that's okay. Well, yes and no. Um, that's right. Our flesh fears, but it's sin. To fear. When God has told us, fear not, for I am with you. But we like to think of ourselves as a lot more righteous than we are. I mean, come on, I'm, I sin that much? Because I fear a lot. About, you know, well, no, we're disobeying a command. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. You see the circumstances that you're in, and you have all kinds of ideas of what the, you feel like the Lord's doing in your life, and you can't see it. It brings dismayed, dismay in our life. The Bible says, "Be not dismayed." Another command: For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Chuck Smith, who's coming on October 10th, on Monday, as we said, makes, uh, talks about Psalm 73 a lot, where David says, he holds me with his right hand. And Chuck Smith just makes a lot of the, a lot of the point that I'm glad it's not the other way around. <laughs> not, I'm glad it's not my right hand holding God. No, this says his right hand is holding me. He will yank us back. He will keep us. It's it, it you know it's it it is uh, a wonderful picture.
I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you if God is for us. Who can be against us, Romans 8.31 says. And so then it says in verse 11, Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. You know, our enemies, whether our enemies, whether it's the devil, uh, demons, or literal enemies, we can believe this promise that they shall be ashamed and disgraced, that they shall be as nothing. It says, and those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing as a non-existent thing. For I am the Lord, I am the Lord, your God will hold your right hand. Again, not the other way around. Saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. So there it goes again. He's putting that word Jacob, former deceiver, former liar, um, actually calling them a worm apart from Christ. That's what we are. And there's just this picture of helplessness of, of a worm. You know, with a worm, you can just go splat. You know, they're, uh, they're, they're so defenseless. And God is recognizing that. He's saying, yes, you are defenseless, but fear not. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah uses that term throughout all, is it 66 chapters? Holy One of Israel. That's what he repeatedly refers to God as. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwinds shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Verse 17, the poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, were not for, will not forsake them. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and, and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and acacia tree, the myrtle and all the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. You know, I, I pray um, a lot for my kids and I have for many, many years. And, you know, one of the things that I really pray, particularly when the kids become teenagers and they're leaving the home, Sam actually uh, my son Sam, who's at Bible College in Hungary, he's actually on a mission trip right now. We're coming back from Serbia. It's crazy. And then he's going to Romania. Uh, and eventually he's going to go to Africa. It's like, wow, uh, that's, that's really cool. But one of the things I pray for my kids so that they will develop a faith of their own because there's a danger of kids just living off the faith of their parents. And that, that ain't going to work once they get into their their teens and their 20s is, is that they would see the hand 
of the Lord, just like verse 20 that says. It, it says, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. You know, it's a, it, it, we can instruct our kids till we're blue in the face and, and they're in a deep slumber. You know, from the word of God, we can be a great example to them. But there is one thing completely out of our control. God's got to show himself real to them. If he doesn't, they're not going to walk with him. They're not. Who would walk with God, a God, who they, 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 they never see his hand in their life? And so it's just been so wonderful to be able to see that over the, over the years, fearing, wondering, is God going to become real to him? And then seeing the Lord just come through in a wonderful way. And, he's, and the Lord here says, I'm going to do all these things because I love you. And I, verse 20, I want you to see and know and consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. And now verses 21 through 24, it's sort of bringing on the, again, I, I, I don't like really calling the Word of God sarcastic, but it's sort of mocking I, I idol worship here. And the next few verses, present your case, speaking of like a trial, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Isn't it great that God is willing to say, I'm the king of Jacob? You know, when we really mess, real, mess up really, really bad, he'll still call us his child, his king. King of Jacob. He doesn't call himself. There's only a place he's in the Bible. King of Jacob. Usually it's king of Israel. But he's willing to say, I'm king of Jacob, that liar, that deceiver. And, and, and I, I am. I'm his king. But anyway, he's, he's speaking to worshipers of idols. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things that were, let, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us the things to come. So, so no idol can tell you what's going to come in the future. The idols of today, whatever, you know, movie stars, money, um, mammon, pleasure, adventure, they have no ability to predict the future. Um, and, you know, I worked for a financial services company for every year, and one of the things they tell the, the managers of the money, never, ever, ever tell anyone what you think the stock market's going to do, because <laughs> you don't know what's what's going to happen to it. And if you say something, the opposite will happen. Uh, and so our idols or the idols of the world cannot predict the future. It cannot do. Verse 23, show the things that are to come hereafter. I mean, this is a great point. I mean, we love the Bible because it tells us what's going to happen in the future. And we're seeing even today uh, fulfillment of prophecy about the latter days. And we've seen so much prophecy fulfilled in the Bible. That's what the book of Luke is all about. That's what Luke tells Theophilus, the, uh, Theophilus that this book is going to be just about what God has fulfilled. Idols can't do that. That's the point here. Verse, 20, verse 23, show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or evil. Just do something, he's saying. You can't do anything. You know, this is like Elijah mocking the, 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 the priests of, of Baal. 
that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing. Your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Wow, you know, that should put the fear of God in all our hearts. That idol worship is an abomination to God. And uh, people say God doesn't grade sin. Not true. The word abomination means exceedingly great sin. And the Bible says that greed is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. And that's an abomination when we get involved in coveting. It's an idol worship. Then he goes back to the same theme. This time he says, I have raised up one from the north and he shall come. So this is another person that God has raised up. Some scholars believe it's the exact, exact same person, Cyrus, who previously had said he had raised him up from the east. Here he's saying he's raising up from the north, meaning he's going to come from all directions. It says, from the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name. Remember, Cyrus does that. Remember in the book of Ezra, you have this pagan king who sees the wonders of the Lord, and he sort of comes out and says, wow, God is the one true God. That's what Cyrus uh, does in, in, in the book of of Ezra, and he basically tells the people that they need to obey the Jews and let them do their thing, you know, build uh, Jerusalem back up. Verse 26, who has declared from the beginning that we may know in former times that we may say he is righteous? Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. And so, well, let me just continue here. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are, and I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they're all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images um, are wind and confusion. Those verses remind anyone of any particular chapter in the New Testament? I looked and there was no one. Anyone? Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. <laughs> it's a very similar chapter, although it's quoting a different verse in the Bible, different verses in the Bible where he says, no one is good, there's none righteous, not even one. And here it's sort of the, the same kind of idea that, look, if you go out into the world, you're not going to find righteousness. And, you know, I, 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 there was a time that I, I struggled a, a, a good deal just with the, f the whole thing. Well, what, what about the good person who never hears about Jesus? What about them? But the Bible says there is no such thing as a good person. Like, you, you don't travel somewhere and find a good Muslim, a good Buddhist, a good Catholic, a good Baptist, a good... These people, they don't exist. And, and, you know, having done a fair amount of traveling and gone to some really, really remote places, I share with you that we're just in... Just in China, and it's just wonderful. People invite you in your home. There's so much hospitality. You're in the middle of nowhere. They're cooking for you, and they're offering you moonshine. By the way, when I use moonshine, the other one, does everyone know what moonshine is? It's 
homegrown alcohol, very high alcoholic content. <laughs> anyway, didn't have any, but they, uh, when they offered it to me, even though I wanted to use it to kill all the bacteria, I thought were in my stomach, but, um, but God uh, took care of me. They were incredibly hospitable, they were friendly, they were nice, but you know, it doesn't take a lot in a conversation with anybody, including them, to realize they're not good, not when put against the righteousness of God. They're willing to betray, they're willing to forsake, they're willing to um, any number of sins, lie, cheat, steal, given a certain situation. It's just pure deception that the w someone in the world does not need Jesus. It's just, that's why Jesus said, go ye into all the world. And, in, and that's the point here, um, that, he is, that he is making here. Where he's saying, is there any righteous, verse 26, who has declared from the beginning that we may know in former times that we may say he is righteous? Uh, surely there is no one who shows. There, surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your word. So um, going on in chapter 42 is a very well-known messianic chapter. A messianic chapter is just a chapter in the Bible that just speaks very directly and on point about none other than Jesus Christ. So we'll see a number of those chapters. We've already seen a couple. Direct reference here to Jesus Christ is the first five verses here are quoted in Matthew. Actually, the first four verses are quoted in Matthew chapter 12, I believe it is. Behold my servant whom I uphold. So all of a sudden, remember, just in reading Isaiah, you're going to get really confused unless you understand that he, he goes from the present, speaking prophecy to people or things that are happening right then and there to the people who live then. Sometimes he goes into the immediate future or, or the near-term future. Chapters 40 and 41 are really, Isaiah is addressing something that's going to happen about 150 years after Isaiah. Now he shoots to 750 years, and it's always, whenever he talks about the Messiah, it's to bring people who are in discouragement great encouragement. So these verses are quoted in Matthew chapter 12. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles, meaning to the non-Jews, to the nations. He will, I like, he will bring forth justification. In order to go to heaven, we must be justified, just if I have never sinned. He will bring forth justice, justification. He will bring salvation to the Gentiles. Great verse, verse 2. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. And you ask, well, how does that describe 
Jesus. Jesus didn't have to get into arguments. He didn't have to, uh, uh, you know, go startle people or shout at them or scream at them. He relied completely on who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. He was. That's what we talked about. In, right, right there in verse one. I have put my ho- the Holy Spirit upon them, and that's how he worked. He was, you know, he was gentle. Not that he was not, of course, capable of being angry. He went through the temple and cleared it out and this type of thing. In Matthew 23, he's like, rebukes the the Pharisees, you know. You compass land and sea to win a single convert, but you may make him twice as much a son as hell as you. Whoa, that's my gentle Jesus? Yeah, it was um, when he was speaking to religious leaders, but... He didn't have to use manipulation or twist people's arms. He just It was just the Spirit of God and His gentleness. We were just talking last night, the witnessing team, that, you know, we, when we go out witnessing in the streets or if you're at work or your mother, father, or, or neighbors, your great, of course, you know, your greatest asset is, is the Holy Spirit within you. But the number one thing, which can be your source of strength, is your humility. You, you know, just not talking back. And, you know, so oftentimes in witnessing, you hand people a track or something. This has happened to me. They'll come back with some snide remark, and we just want the last word, don't we? We just want to say something, you know. We'll get mocked or whatever, and we insist on having the last word. Well, you know something? The thing that's going to persuade folks is, or, or allow the Holy Spirit to use us in such a powerful way is humility. Do we speak the truth? Obviously we do. But this was Jesus' method, verse 2. It's a great, great verse for witnessing. We'll have to have a study on this, Guillermo, on Saturday night. We read sometimes some things from the Bible before they go out. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. That's a heart attitude there. And then this this wonderful verse often quoted, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for the truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged until he has established justice or justification in the earth and the coastlands, meaning all the nations shall wait for his law. So a bruised reed he will not break. How many of you are familiar with reeds? You know, they're really weak, right? It doesn't take a whole lot. Just go flick. The reed goes. How many of you feel like that in your life sometimes? You're easily broken. I, I'm going to raise my hand for me. I mean, and, 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 and the interesting thing about it is that, you know, sometimes we feel that God deals roughly with our weaknesses. That's that's sort of the God I grew up with. That 
there was, when it comes to our weaknesses, there was very little grace or our brokenness or, or when we sin and we've been bruised. We're a bruised reed. We're weak before we were bruised. <laughs> a, a reed is weak before it's, even the strongest reed is very, very weak. That's us. But a reed also gets bruised really easy. All you have to do is walk through a bunch of reeds. Ha- Three-fourths of them are bruised. That's us. Isn't this an encouraging verse? A bruised reed he will not break. Oh, this is all you can do? I'm just going to break you. Smash. A smoking flax he will not quench. You know, sometimes I feel like a smoking flax, meaning it's not burning. It's like a wick or whatever that's not burning. It's, it was burning at one time, but through discouragement, through unfulfilled dreams or whatever, through, un, you know, circumstances that were not expected in someone's life, all of a sudden what was burning is now just smoking. Oh, God's just going to put me out completely. What's the point of me? A smoking flax he will not quench. Anyone else really encouraged by these verses? I just love them. And he will not, he will bring forth justice for the truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged. Now, Jesus was a man of sorrows. But, and, and he, he did go through tremendous, um, uh, you know, particularly when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just tremendous, uh, uh, you know, pressure because of what was before him and, and sorrow and pain. Anguish was the word that I'm looking for. Anguish, yes. Discouragement, no. Dis- he will, verse 4 says, he will not fail nor be discouraged. You know, he went to the cross and he, he didn't stop. He didn't fail. He was not dis- discouraged until he said, it is finished. And then, of course, the ultimate fulfillment of verse 4 is, in, is the second coming of Jesus Christ until he has established justice in the earth. It's a wonderful description of the character of Christ. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will not, verse 2, will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his, uh, v- uh, cause his voice to be heard in the street. I love Psalm 18. It says, David says to God, your gentleness has made me great. If you become great, and I hope every single one of you does. I didn't say famous. I said great. A great work. A great work as a mom in the home, a great work as someone who's an evangelist, a great work as someone who has con- integrity. It's not, it's not going to be, it, it, it's going to be rather because of the gentleness of God. His gentleness. His gentleness will make you great. And it's just a, just a wonderful uh, description there. Just a, a, of the character of Jesus. And we do have to remember, by the way, that, you know, Jesus says, come unto me, all, all, you know, all you who are heavy laden, and, and, and I will give you rest 
or I'm lowly of heart, I'm meek, I'm gentle. You know, we're supposed to be like him. Meekness is what we need to pursue in our lives. Lowliness, treating others, not, not breaking the bruised reed, reeds around us. Not putting out the smoking flax. You know, as, as, as a pastor, that's just, just so important for, that's such important, you know, instruction for me. Uh, in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says this. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Hmm, I'm going to have to say it by memory. It says, there it is. Chapter, First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 says, Warn those who are unruly. But then it says, Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. Jesus wants us to be like him. That's what Jesus is like. A bruised reed. He doesn't break. A smoking flax. He does not put out. He does not put out. Verse 5 says, Thus says God, the Lord, who created heavens and earth, who stretched them out, who spread forth the earth, and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Now, actually, this is God calling Jesus. This is God the Father calling Jesus, still referring to this servant. Isn't it cool how Jesus is called a servant? No servant is greater than his master, yet I am come as one who serves. That Jesus is our servant. That's a hard one to get for me to get my mind around, but that's what the Bible says. That's what he says. I, the Lord, have called you. This is the Father calling, to, calling Jesus his son in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Now we talked, talked about chapter 41, 42, and 43 are the, to me the Jehovah's Witness and Mormon chapters because this is the verse I quote to Mormons as well as chapter 43, verse 11. But this particular one, it says, I am the Lord that, that is my name and my glory I will not give to another. Mormons believe that over time you can become a god with your own world of people who worship you. Really weird and creepy, but that's what they believe. This says in verse 8, I'm the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. So my question when I'm talking to Mormons, this says he will not give his glory to another. But you guys believe that 
you can receive glory someday? It's a hard question to answer. Because God, by his very nature, his character, says he will not give his glory to another. That's just the nature of God. They're denying the nature of God. But, but verse 6 is really what we need to focus on. Not Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, but the character of God in Jesus Christ. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. You know, Jews, they didn't want to have anything to do with Gentiles. And there's these references to reaching out to Gentiles throughout the Old Testament. And they, I don't know if they're whited out or what, but, but they're there. And it's very clear that the Messiah was going to be a light to the Gentiles. And I love here how Jesus is called a covenant. And Jeremiah will, will read eventually that I'm going to make a, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And I'm going to give you, turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And I will, you know, and you know, no one will have to teach you. You will just know because of my spirit in you. And, and so the covenant is Jesus. I love how he's just referred to here as a covenant. Verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You know, if, if God is really God, he should be able to tell us things before they happen. And that's, you know, and that's one of the points here. Sing to the Lord a new song. I love how the Lord puts new songs in our hearts. You know, over the course of a life, how many t- new songs will God put in your heart? Because we need a new song. I need a different song today than I needed 10 years ago when I was walking with the Lord. I'm in a different place. I need a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise to the coastlands. The, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yet shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemy. So now here, you jump from... Jesus' first coming in which, you know, he was the suffering servant, a bruiser he's not going to break, a smoking flax he's not going to quench. Here you jump to his return where he, he will come and he will set up kingdom and he will prevail against all the enemies, the enemies um, of Israel. It says here, I have held my peace a long time. The Bible says that God suffers long for us. And he holds his peace a long time. I've, I've been still and restrained myself. It's a frightening thing, thinking that you know, the Lord is restraining his anger against the sin of the world. But at, at, you know, at one point, they will no longer be restrained, the Bible says. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetations. I will make the rivers 
coastlands and I will dry up the pools. Sounds like revelation to me. This is what's going to be happening during the tribulation period. But then he switches course here. He says, I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. So all this wonderful contrast between what the Lord does in the life of someone who's turning to him. This could very well be referring in verse 16 to those people who come to know the Lord during the tribulation time. The Bible says that prior to the tribulation, which is a seven-year period, the church will be raptured. Not, not a single Christian will remain on the, on the face of the earth. But during the tri tribulation, there will be people who come to know the Lord, and it's going to, it will be indeed a very difficult time for them. This could be a reference to that in verse 16. I will bring the blind away they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them. Because it's going to be a very dark time. These things I will do for them. I will not forsake them. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed. Who trust in carved images. Who say to the molded images, you are my God. Hear you deaf and, you, and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send, who is blind as he who is perfect, and blind as the servant's Lord's servant, seeing many things which you do not observe, opening the ears, but he does not hear. So here, this is similar to what Jesus said when he said to the Pharisees and to the religious people that, you know, I have come not for the healthy, but for the sick. Because the healthy and those, he says, I have come for the blind and not who those, for those who see. It's the same uh, kind of idea here. Verse 21, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will exalt the Lord, the law, and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes and they are hidden in prison houses. They are for prey and no one delivers for plunder, and no one says restore. Who among, uh, this is apparently a reference to Israel at the time of the tribulation, where they're just being plundered and destroyed, where the Lord is going to come in and, and rescue them. Verse 23, who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Was it not the Lord? So that's interesting that, that, it is God who exalts Israel. It's also God who gives Israel for plunder. It was he against whom we have sinned, for they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to the law. Therefore, he poured uh, on him the fury of his anger, anger and the strength of battle. It, ha it has set him on fire all around, yet he did not know, and it burned him. Yes, he did not take it to heart, but now... Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. We'll pick up uh, there next time. But the Lord, in spite of the fact Israel goes uh, into great judgment, and again, there's probably there's a near term here, uh, speaking of Babylon, that also 
you know, this is also going to be the case at, at the time of Jesus' return, where there's tremendous, tremendous judgment against Israel, but ultimately he's, the Lord's always faithful to his promise, and he gathers his people uh, back in and calls them, says to them, you are mine. All right.